If you have your Bibles, I'm reading from the book of 2 Kings and a few verses there. 2 Kings chapter 20. Are you ready now? And Isaiah said unto Hezekiah, Isaiah, he says, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come that all that is in thine house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store unto this day shall be carried into Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. Mm. And thy sons that shall issue from thee, which you will beget, your sons, they'll be taken away. They'll be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And here is Hezekiah's reply. Good is the word of the Lord, which thou hast spoken. He said, is it not good, this is Hezekiah, if peace and truth be in my days? I'll get to that. I preach today. It's a personal thing. Amen. Everybody said amen. What I'd like you to do is just remain standing for a second. And I'd like you to, to take, I know you've traveled around the globe here from eastern and western hemispheres. But I'd like you just to lean forward to someone in front of you or behind you. I just want you to tell them something very sincere. I'll give you a couple of hints. I love you. I'm grateful for you. I'm glad that you're with me today. I'm glad I'm sitting next to you. Just a little context. And I won't give you the whole picture. It's sordid. Here's a king. His name is Ahaz. He enters the kingdom at 20 years old. Here's what the Bible says. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Don't take that as being shallow. He gave away the gold and silver that was in the temple. He set up false idols and restored the groves. He built new false idols and gods. And it made, he made abhorrent sacrifices on them. Ahaz even sacrificed one of his newborn sons in the fire. He reigned 16 years and died, but not after removing the Sabbath canopy. I'll let you figure that out. The scripture gives us all we need to know about this 20-year-old king when, when it says he followed in the way of abominations. My small description leaves out so much, but I offer this glimpse to showcase what kind of condition and national environment it was in Judah when his son, another son, Hezekiah, took the throne. And of Hezekiah, the Bible offers a different commentary. Hezekiah did, the Bible says, that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. Hezekiah restored the temple, removed the things that Ahaz had built. He restored the law of the Lord. He kept the holy things of God holy and separate. All of which resulted in God's blessings. The people of Judah enjoyed triumph as they continually gathered in the spoils of war. In a purely metaphoric sense, God was put in his proper place. And finally, Judah would once again welcome the voice of the prophets. Hezekiah did well. 
for the great majority of his life and monarch, he executed the will of God among the people of God. But something happened toward the end of his life that altered the course of the nation. At the end, Hezekiah became very ill and on his deathbed, the prophet Isaiah came to to the room. He tells the king that your sickness is unto death, so get your house in order. But Hezekiah would not accept such a finality. And the Bible says that he turned his face to the wall and he pleaded and prayed with God for more time. And God heard his prayer insomuch that Hezekiah turned on his heels to return to the king and said that God heard his prayer and that more time would be afforded him. To this point, ladies and gentlemen, nothing is wrong. But in that period of lengthened days, Hezekiah will throw caution to the wind. Even though he knew he was in the final days of his life, he did the unthinkable. I cannot tell you why inexplicably. In those waning years when the pronouncement of the prophet was suspended, Hezekiah let down his guard. He he knew, he must have known that his extension was only temporary. He must have known that his life would not be forever. But for some reason in the last years of his days, he made deals with the enemy and opened the doors to the treasury of the temple and it cost him. The enemy came to call, and in his pride and self-promoting way, Hezekiah let them on a guided tour to see all the things that God had provided for for the people of Judah. And I read from the Bible, 2 Kings. Hezekiah hearkened unto them. He showed them all the house of his precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment. They got to see all the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. What a tragedy. And when the prophet Isaiah came back to question him, there was no embarrassment in his spirit. Hezekiah had become a king unto himself. In his waning years when he should have made his life right and his way straight, he chose a crooked path. And because of it, Isaiah spoke of a coming judgment against Judah And I read it to you, and Hezekiah's nonchalant response was, well, as long as I have peace in my time, then the the word of the Lord is good for me. He was disassociated from the people, from the very people that he once led. He did not lose his position, but he did lose his purpose. And I say to you, that positions come and go. But lost purpose is more detrimental than being replaced or being demoted. If your purpose hinges on your position, then you have real, no real purpose at all. You already heard the pastor speak today. If your job, quote unquote job at the church, is the only reason you attend or the only real reason you're involved, then you're really not involved at all. And Hezekiah, for him, he had a job, but he had no heart. He lost his heart, his passion, his pathos for what he was supposed to be and not just do. Hezekiah forsook the burden of the nation. He abandoned the cause of the kingship. And he did so at the worst time. He did so at the last days, the twilight of his life. If there's ever a time to be saved, it's when you know you're going to die. If there's ever a time to repent, it should be when you know that you're not going to live. You see, Hezekiah was surrounded by memories 
Can you hear me? Memories. Memories are wonderful if they stay in their place, but memories can make havoc on your life. Memories can degrade the future more than any present enemy. The good old days can bind you up. Hezekiah became a detached and discontented ruler. He was disconnected with the people. What was once important to preserve became the coveted treasures for the sons of Babylon. Hezekiah's indifference became his undoing. It no longer became special to him. The kingdom, his appointment, the people, even the land, it was no longer personal. It was a dispassionate duty. I tell you today, it has to be personal. Real leadership is personal. Building the kingdom of God is not a job. It's a calling. And it's not limited to licensed ministers or people that, that, that share the pulpit or pulpit teachers or ministers. It's the call of God for every believer. It's got to be personal for every believer. Here, pastor today. We don't just come to church. We come to worship the Lord. We don't go to somebody's church. We don't go to a church that belongs to the last name of the pastor. We come to worship God. And we don't come just to, here pastor, we don't just come to appease our guilt. We come to offer God our lives as a living sacrifice. It's personal. It's got to be personal for you and me. Because among other definitions, personal means intimate. It means that there are ties that bind and emotions that are active. It's personal. It's personal. It means that there's a particular feeling that's invoked in your life. A loyalty that drives you to be engaged and involved. That's when it becomes personal to you. Uh-huh. And the day that this house becomes just another thing to do on Sunday. Hear me now. That's when we stop protecting the treasure. The treasure is the Holy Ghost. The treasures are the holy things of God. It's the beauty of holiness. It's devotion to a cause greater than this most temporal and mortal life. Unprotected treasures are destined to be stolen. This is not a neutral place. Full of thoughtless clamor. But it's a place where we join our voices in a joyful noise unto the Lord. It doesn't work with an apathetic approach. The fuel that runs this church is a desperate reaching for the hem of his garment. The thing that makes this a place of healing and restoration and hope, it's a pressing our way toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. If you come with no expectation, then you'll leave with nothing because nothing produces nothing. But they that are hunger and thirsting after righteousness shall be filled. Hunger produces food. Just the mere fact that you are hungry for God, he produces food. The mere fact that you are thirsty for God, he produces the rivers of living water. They that are hungry, they're going to get the food. He doesn't bring out the food and the drink until the people are hungry and are thirsty. It's a personal thing. But none of it comes unless we find it critical. It's a life and death matter, ladies and gentlemen. And you've got to come to this house where it really doesn't matter what other people say because you know it's a personal thing. i got to get there. So whether you're coming with me or not, I'm going. Whether they come, I'm going. Whether my wife comes, I'm going. If my children don't want to come, I'm going. It's a personal thing. i got to do it for myself. 
I'll just stand up here and God, I'm thankful that you pray for me. I'm thankful sometimes that you come lay hands on me, but sometimes I'm in my own worship. It's personal. That's my worship. I can't even really explain my love for him to you. It's about what he did for me, how he rescued me, how he gave me hope when I felt like I was lost. It's a personal thing. Sometimes I just got to fall on my face, not because I'm sorry or I'm sad or I'm burdened. It's just because he's worthy of it. If you ask why some people cry out, you might not get a full explanation. Maybe they don't even know why. Maybe they can't even put it in words. The English vocabulary doesn't give them all the words. There's not enough dialogue. There's, there's not enough script to say. Ask someone why they give so much time to the things of the Lord and to the church. It might be a tough explanation because it's personal. And it's got to be personal. You've got to have a personal walk. You've got to have a personal worship. You have to have a personal cry. You have to be personally wanting to get to God. You can't wait on everybody else. If nobody else stands up and shouts, you've got to have a shout in your own voice. If no one else is pressing their Way, you gotta press your way. If nobody else does it, your praise can't be contingent upon what everybody else does. I don't know why you came to church. I don't know why you came, but I came to praise the Lord. I hope you don't find this callous. Please don't find this callous and harsh. I'm not trying to be rude. I don't know why. But sometimes I don't even care why you came. Because I know why I came. And why I came is so much more important why when anybody else came. I don't care what the commentaries are. I know why I came. It's personal. I've got to find you, Lord. Ah. You ought to have a little personal time right now with Jesus. Just take a little time while I'm preaching. Just have a little personal time. You ought to just find a little personal time. Thank you, Lord. I want to thank you. I want to give you praise. I just want to sit here right now. I raise my hand or stand right here and just say thank you, Lord. I, I love everybody here, but I got to have a little personal time with you. Yeah. Hezekiah he had it all but he lost his God given purpose he started so well Judah all the people of Judah have been given both peace and prosperity think of that two of life's most treasured blessings they're not always mutually exclusive Although sometimes there is peace, but there's no prosperity. And other times we find prosperity, but it's at the cost of war. But in the end, when his life was almost over, Hezekiah let down his guard. He opened the gates. He allowed the enemy to view the hidden things of God. And because of that, God said, I'm going to cut off this people. To which Hezekiah replied with a statement of indifference, no passion. He was blessed. He was ordained, yes. He was given victories, yes. And he was given treasures, He was even healed and was given extra years of life, but he forfeited something in the end. He forfeited it. He lost something. (laughs) You ever lost anything? Have you ever lost your wallet? 
Did you ever misplace your wallet? Can we say misplaced wallet? Did somebody, quote unquote, take your wallet? Who picked up my keys? Only to find out that they're in your pocket? Never lost anything? Anybody ever lost anything? Lose a lot of things, but don't lose your passion. <laughs> Hezekiah, he lost, you can lose a lot of stuff. Don't lose your passion. Yeah. He lost something. Yeah, he lost something. Yeah, he lost it. He lost the, something inside. He lost what the Righteous Brothers sang about in 1964. <laughs> you lost that love and feeling. Whoa, that love and feeling. You lost that love and feeling. Now you're gone, gone, gone. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's the Righteous Brothers, aren't they the church group? Uh-huh. I said, you lost you, all, you lost the loving feeling. Man, you start to lose the loving feeling, it gets cold in the church. You lose the loving feeling, you snarl at the people who really ought to be your family. You lose the loving feeling, that then you don't have any emotions. Because you lost something you were not supposed to lose. You can lose your car, your house, your job, but don't lose that loving feeling. <laughs> Hezekiah didn't just lose a feeling for the things of the Lord, but he lost his love for the people. He, he lost his love. He would not have opened the doors had he not lost the love. Hezekiah should have taken a note from Moses. Remember Moses? He's on the mountain with God. He's gathering what will become the world's most important written document, the Ten Commandments. Carved out by the finger of God himself, and the people are down below Worshipping a golden calf, Asics, it took them less than 40 days to forget who Moses was. And about the same length of time to sink headlong into Egypt's abhorrent traditions of idol worship, of nakedness and lewdness. And God saw it and he said to Moses, these people are stiff-necked, Moses. Moses, it won't matter what I do for them, they are rebellious And here it is, Exodus 32. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation, Moses. But Moses replied back to God, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. Yes, Lord, they've made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if you won't, then Blot me out of the book you've written. Moses said to God, you made a promise to Abraham. You brought them out of Egypt. And Lord, I know that they don't deserve it. They're rebellious. They're disobedient. They are stiff-necked. But if you have to wipe them out, just take me out too. 
And I cannot tell you why for the life of me after all those people have done and would do against Moses. All the murmuring and complaining all the times they acted so foolishly and rose up against him. Moses still loved them. He stood up for them. He stood in the way for them even before God. Because for Moses it was a personal matter. Their loss was his loss. Their triumph and gain was his triumph and gain. He was a leader among them. He was a man of purpose and not just a position leader. He wanted them to be connected together so he led them in the way that he hoped they would follow. And he stood up before God and said, Lord, if you're going to wipe them out, just kill me too. Because it was personal to him. See, this can't be a social group. Though I know that there are social aspects to every church. Can't just be a community club. Where we get in, get out as fast as we can. This house is not just another room. It's a place where we've chosen to gather to lift up the name of Jesus in a corporate fashion. It ought not to be cold in here. I'm not talking about the AC, Brother Hudiger. Turn it down. It's got to be engaging. The needs represented here must be shared. The burdens are meant to be carried by all of us. The group is called a family. And the objective is to encourage each other in the Lord. It's a personal thing. And I know that people leave this house. Some will leave for jobs and others will leave for grievances. But it's all painful for me because it's personal. Even Jesus felt the sting. It happened when he spoke in terms of sorrow and pain. It happened when he proclaimed himself to be the bread of heaven. He said, for my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. And it offended them. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? The Lord has spent so much time with him, so many of them, dozens and dozens of people, men, far more than just the twelve disciples. There were groups of men that followed him. They loved his teaching. They were his disciples. They followed him. Some of them were described as men which have accompanied with us all the time that the Lord went in and out among us. But Jesus pushed the boundaries of their belief. He pushed them. Did you know that the Lord will push your boundaries? He'll push your boundaries. Because many will follow him as long as it doesn't cost them anything. And other people will follow him as long as they can understand him. But when it costs you something and you can't understand it, people leave. He challenged their limitations and it made them grossly uncomfortable. They wanted conquest and he offered them self-sacrifice. They wanted mastery and he gave them servanthood. And at the conclusion of his self-declaration, when they just couldn't take it any longer, the Bible says this, and I quote, from that time, many of his disciples, maybe it's just coincidence that the reference is 666. (laughs) Trivia. It just happened at the right place. People left him. They went back and walked no more with him. Then Jesus said unto the twelve, watch this. He's watching them go, and he turns to his men. Will you go also? Are you going to go away? Think of it, the Emmanuel, God with us, the incarnate God in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt. Ask his remaining twelve disciples, will you also leave me? The dual nature of Jesus Christ leaps forward, the great God, the man 
It's in full display. We see it. The humanity of Jesus Christ watches as his followers leave in mass and it provokes him to turn to his remaining few and ask, will you also go away? It was personal to the Lord. He felt it. He was not only tempted in every measure as we, but he felt the sting of a disenfranchised congregation. You tell me, because many have. When a person leaves God and backslides, who do they leave? Don't they just leave God himself? Do they not simply abandon truth? Isn't that what we say? I've been told that, Pastor, don't take it personally. They just didn't love the truth. Oh, don't tell Paul that. Paul was not alone. He had men with him, powerful men, anointed men. Paul was not the only apostle among them. There were what the Bible calls fellow laborers with Paul who shared his suffering in sermons and untold, unrecorded miracles wrought by men we'll never know. Incredible men. They were a small but bountiful band of apostolic warriors converting cities from coast to coast. And Paul offered them a place beside him and they offered him a place beside them and Paul often spoke of them. He included some of their names, the most notable men in his letters to the church. Here's one of them. I'll just give you one. He said to the church at Colossia, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. But a tragedy overtook one of his brothers. It befell Paul when Demas left the truth and Paul took it personally. Paul writes, for Demas have forsaken me, having loved this present world, is departed to Thessalonica, Christians to Galatia, Titus and Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me, he said. Demas forsook me. Who? Not God? Not the Bible, not the truth, not the church. No, me, of course, God, of course, the truth. But Paul thought it was personal, and he wrote it down in the Holy Writ. Demas left me. You see, before we decide that this is just some group, you might want to reconsider. It's a body. It's a family. You're not distant. You are connected. Of course, if you want to ignore the brothers and sisters in the Lord in the church, you do so at your own shame. But this is a body. This is a family. This is not just a group. It's got to be personal to you. When you're not here, there's a gaping hole in the church. When you're not prayerful, there's a gaping hole in the church. Yes. So let me answer the question for you. I better answer the question. It's Cain's question. Am I my brother's keeper? Let me answer it for you. Mm, that's affirmative. Yes. Just say it, yes. Yeah, look around. You keep them, they keep you. You're keeping them. Yes. You keep everybody. Not only do you keep yourself, you keep everybody. Yes. Yes to you, yes to you, yes to you. Who we are is not known by how much we love the lost. I was going to mess with you now, but I'll... I'll let the scripture speak. We like to have the idea that we have a reputation, and we do well. I think many churches do well, but who we are is not known by our love, burden, and what we do for lost people and lost souls. That is not what defines us. It's not how much we do for people out there. But by this, Jesus said, shall all men know that you are my disciples. If, that's a big if, 
If you have love, one, here's a verb, two, another. Our identification comes from within. It is established, known, recognized by people who are without. So you got to get personal. you got to get involved. Not with gossip, but with compassion. Not with judgmental attitudes, but with restoration. Not with condemnation, but with a ministry of reconciliation. It's got to be personal. I'm standing here to say, this is a personal thing. See, they and the children beyond this room, all of them belong to me. And all of them need to belong to you. And the elders and the mothers all are my fathers and mothers. They all belong to me. See, the idea that we can win our city and disciple hundreds of people does not begin with them. It begins with us, among us, because it's personal. So when anyone tries to qualify a statement by saying, now don't take this personal, I wish you'd just be quiet right then. Because you just ruined, now I know I'm going to take it personal. In fact, any time that people preface a statement, it means that the statement is what they prefaced. I don't want to be dramatic. I don't mean to puff you up, but just, well then just be quiet right now because you just already ruined whatever you're about to say. I don't want to give you a big head, but I just think you did good. Well, you just hurt me at the same time. Thank you. I'm not trying to talk bad about somebody, but let me just talk bad about somebody. I was told not to repeat this, so listen the first time. <laughs> I can't repeat it. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. The house of worship means something to me. And when it means less to me, then that means I open up the doors. And let the enemy take a full view. There's some things the enemy should not see in your life. You should give no place to the devil. You see, I'm hungry for them. But without cannot happen until something happens within. To love God. To love one another. To serve the world. Love God. Love one another. Serve the world. And it is in chronological order. Look. God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. Moses gave the people the commandments. And then the people expanded the law. They found 613 laws. 613. And they believed that those were the tenets of what they would believe. 248 of them were things you should not do. And 248 of them related to what they considered the 248 different parts of the body, the human body. The remainder were things that you should do. 365, which is one law for every day that you live. And they loved the law 
And they told everyone you have to keep the law. But the law was hard to keep. In fact, no one really could keep it. And so when the Pharisees finally tried to trap Jesus and to destroy his ministry, they came to him because they all knew the 613 laws. And they said to him, which is the greatest of all the commandments? Which is the greatest of them? Because whatever one you pick, there's a lot more against you, and now you have prioritized the commandments. And they were trying to trap him in a place. So he, re- he reduces all of it into two, 613 down to two. And he says, there's only two commandments upon which all the law of the commandments rest. They hinge on. If they pull them out, everything else falls. And here's the first one. Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your body, your strength. Love the Lord. That's it. I got to love the Lord. I got to love the Lord with all my heart, my soul, my body, strength. I'm going to tell you what, if you start loving the Lord more than you love the world and your job, your cars, your things, your Facebook account, your Instagram account, and Fortnite, (laughs) I just wanted to throw that in. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about, don't you, Fortnite? No, you don't. That's right. You don't know? Praise God. Keep loving the Lord. Forget about it. Forget about it, Brother Chris. Forget about it. If you start loving the Lord, you, your life would change. But you got a lot of things pressing for the love. You got a lot of things that are invading the love of God. And I'll tell you what those things will do. They'll steal your love and you will lose that love and feeling. That, that love and feeling will go away because you love the things of the world. You start loving God with all of your heart, your soul, your body, your mind, your strength. And the love of the world won't be in you. You'll stop making excuses for your bad behavior and for the things you think that are okay because you love the Lord. When somebody asks you why you're living the way you're living, you won't tell them anymore, well, it's because my church says this or because if I don't, I'll get kicked out of the choir or I can't be involved in the youth. No, you say, because I love the Lord, I want to do everything I can to please him. I love him with all my heart, my soul, my mind, my body, my strength. That is the first commandment with promise. It's the first commandment that we have to have with obedience. And the second is likewise. But the problem with the second is that we have the second based upon conditions. Ah. It's conditional for many of us. The second, however, is that I love my neighbor, my brother, like I love myself. And he said, the whole thing rests on two. 613, 613 down to two. Love God and love one another. You see, there it is. Not conditional. Not conditional. Not with strings attached. Not if they are good to you or you like them. I don't love my kids when they're behaving well and hate them or despise them when when they're behaving poorly. The family. Look at the family here. Just look over at somebody right now. Just look at people. Look at them right now. That's your brother. That's your brother. That's your sister. 
Here's some church mamas, some church dads. Look at them. Look at them. That's your family. That's my brother. That's my sister. That's your family. Hear me. I want to tell you. You want to have a great revival, a powerful revival? Would you like to see miracle signs and wonders? Ain't going to happen. You want to have all your family saved, all your neighborhood saved? Would you like to have another several hundred people baptized in Jesus' name, loving the Lord, serving the Lord? They're not going to happen. Because what happens out there is contingent upon what happens in here. The without is always contingent upon the within. When the within gets right, the without flourishes. They're going to know who you are because of what you do among each other. They're not going to know who you are about what, how you treat them. They're going to know. The world will know that you belong to Jesus by how you treat people in the church. I'm going to tell you about a personal thing. It's personal. It's personal. When I open up my drawer, I've got a button. It's this big. It's a button. I meant to bring it today, and it slipped my mind until I walked up to the platform. I'll wear it one Sunday. It's a button this big. has a picture on it of a young boy, 12-year-old boy. He's smiling big. He's got beautiful hair. It's personal to me. When I open up the drawer, I look at this I look at this picture on a weekly basis because it's personal. Now, it's not always personal to everyone else. It's personal to me. Because, you see, I was the young pastor, walked in, wanted to restore, and, and less than a year time, that little boy passed away of a brain tumor. He's 12 years old. He died when he was 12 years old. His mama has been faithful to this house since that time. She didn't leave the house. She may have gone through depression and discouragement, but I commend you, Lori, and your husband would be here too, but he's been very, very ill. It comes whenever he can. But I got a button. His name was Jared Torrance. Now, look over there. Tell me, which 12-year-old would you like to sacrifice and see pass away? Tell me, pick out one. See, it's a personal thing. So when I see my 12-year-olds, I'm thinking... I'm thinking, i got to put as much into them as I can. When I see my 11-year-olds and my 10-year-olds, because they belong to me, you ought to be thinking this way. See, if you thought this way, we wouldn't have any problems with people in the nursery, in the Sunday school department, anybody working at the church, because you think it's personal. i got to make sure that I'm available to help the church, because one of those babies is going to grow up. I'm investing them. And one of them, we might lose them along the way, but I'm going to put as much of Jesus as I can. You see, it's a personal thing to me. So when I open up the drawer and I look at his picture, I have to pause for a moment every week when I open up the drawer and look at his picture and I remember him and know I've got to say, it's a personal thing. I'm not just here fulfilling a job and, and getting a little paycheck every other week, but I'm here because God called me to be here to seek the lost and to teach the word and to love people. Let's let me just reminisce a little bit. Jared was a powerful young man. He was 12 years old, and he didn't have a bad attitude, and he didn't complain about his sickness. And when he had, when he passed out from his diabetes, he got up smiling. And when he got the medicine in him, he kept smiling. And when he got the orange juice in him, his blood sugar came back. And when he found out he had a tumor, he was still loving God and praying for other people. Let me just tell you. That cloud of witnesses surrounds you, but it may not help you. It may condemn you. Because there's a 12-year-old that was laying hands on Steve Richardson when Steve was going through his sickness and he was praying for him. It's a personal thing to me. It's personal. 
This is not just another house. This is the house of God. This is not a job. This is the house of the Most High God. It's something I love and I'd give my life for. And if you do that together, we'll do something in this city that will astound this whole state. Help me, Zach. Ah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, time because he loves it when you get personal with the Savior. Just stand and lift up your voice right here where you are. Lift up your voice wherever you are. The Lord is in this house and He's waiting for you. If you get hungry, He'll open up the food, He'll, he'll provide the drink, the water.